This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. Looks like there's a bunch of questions, so I'm going to get through them at a quicker pace, but I always try to have that healthy balance of giving all the information that the person asking the question, as well as everybody else listening, might need in order to get the answer to that. So hopefully I'll still get it right this time, but as always, I'm always open to feedback, so let me know if I I didn't do this one justice, but let's jump in and see what we got. First up on Floatplane, Amon from Denmark wanted to know what's the best way to test latency for HDMI switches. Uh, both for your own personal use and what could reviewers use to test. They were specifically wondering about a switch from Ori, I believe is how you pronounce the company. <coughs> That's HDMI in, but also allows for HDMI over Ethernet, which is something that I've used quite a bit over the years, to be honest. Um, and testing this is the exact same as testing everything else. Grab yourself a time or a time sleuth or really any lag testing device. The Mr. Laggy is equally as good. Um, there's a bunch of open source solutions that I think are about to be sold as well. So you can make your own if you wanted to. But basically, grab that uh, and plug it directly into a flat panel. Set it to the highest resolution it supports, let's say 1080p60 in the case of the time sleuth. And then hold that measuring device in the top left of the TV. Now... How you hold it is going to affect the results, and even just a millimeter in any direction could skew it a bit, but not milliseconds, microseconds. So, uh, or if it's like 1.9 and you might get a 2.1 reading, something like that. So just pay attention to that and get your base reading. Then run it through whatever HDMI device you're testing, a switch, uh, audio video receiver, um, any video processor, anything, but run it through that and then do the same test. And if it's the same within a couple of microseconds, that's a zero latency device. So that's how I would test any of these things. And the only thing that I haven't had the opportunity to test yet is how some of these switches like this handle 1080p downscaling. So you feed it 4K60, you could pass through 4K60 on one output port, and on the other, you could flip a switch and it downscales it to 1080p. Now, I would assume that that's not much latency, but the reason that that personally doesn't bother me is the number one reason you would do something like that. Actually, the two reasons you would do that is AVR compatibility. So if you have an older but very expensive and very nice AVR that only handles HDMI 1.4, sending it the 1080p signal to its audio input would solve that issue altogether, or streaming. 
you have a 4K60 source and you want to stream in 1080p60, it doesn't really matter if the stream is five seconds behind because that's not what you're gaming on. That's just going through your capture card. So those are the two scenarios that would be the most common, I think, and they don't really affect, latency doesn't affect that. However, as soon as I have the ability to test a 4K60, actually, I think I could do that now with a RetroTINK 4K. I should get around to doing that. I should do a, a live stream where I just test some of this equipment. But anyway, the point is, um, that's all you have to do. Use a time sleuth or any other lag testing device direct into your TV and then back through whatever equipment you're testing. And that should get you a solid measurement. And if it's within a few microseconds, it's almost guaranteed where you held your hand. So not a big deal. Um, also, how'd I do on your name? I'm terrible at pronunciations, but I always try my absolute best. So hopefully I got it right. Brickfist brought up a very annoying issue that's been going on with the Xbox Series X. It has very delayed audio when using Dolby Atmos for gaming. It's extremely noticeable, and they don't know how anybody plays with Atmos on. It's the same when gaming on Windows over HDMI. Even 5.1 audio has some delay on Xbox when gaming, although these don't seem to be an issue when watching movies. Apparently, PlayStation has no lag in either mode, either Dolby Atmos or 5.1. So what can Xbox and Windows gamers who play on TVs over HDMI do to get rid of this nasty lag? There's nothing you could do. And that's a really crappy answer, but here's the unfortunate truth. Um, the reason you probably don't notice it while watching movies is you probably switch your TV to some kind of movie mode that has more latency than game mode. And while it's probably not going to be as slow as Dolby Atmos on the Xbox, it's bridging the gap between them a little bit, so it makes it less noticeable. But if you were to do some kind of um, high-speed camera audio test, you would probably find that it's still delayed, it's just less delayed. And the reason you really can't do anything about this for gaming is in order to truly sync it up, you would have to delay the output of your video game, creating latency in that mode. This really has to be something that's addressed by Microsoft. And if the issue was actually that both PlayStation and Xbox have latency in this mode, I would love to dig in and try to help. But if it really is only happening on the Xbox Series X, then this is going to be something that they have to deal with. So you really have to just keep annoying Microsoft on everywhere, social media, emails, be polite, but be persistent and everybody has to do it. And then they'll eventually release some kind of patch for it. I have actually heard uh, Vincent Teo from HGTV Test. If you're not subscribed and you're into this stuff, that guy's amazing. Um, but he has talked about how there's more latency with Dolby Atmos sometimes as well on certain TVs. So I, my gut's telling me it's the way Dolby processes their audio, and they're not exactly known as being an open and friendly company you could just ask questions to. So I don't really know how or when this could possibly be fixed, and I doubt it could be fixed by us. So my uh, my only guess would be that we have to annoy Microsoft until they actually fix it. But if anybody else has any suggestions, or if I might be missing something, then by all means, please let me know. Uh, I am not an expert at the Xbox Series X at all, but I do kind of understand how a lot of this stuff works. So that's my educated guess that's probably right, and unfortunately not what anybody who has to, or wants to hear. Next up, Bjors Fjortoff wants to know, for best-looking fidelity and resolution, will a modded N64 with an N64 digital and a Wii with AVI HDMI hooked up to a RetroTINK 4K on an LG 4K OLED 
be more upscaled and better looking than upscaling both consoles through emulators to 4K. If money wasn't an issue, what would I pick? Not taking compatibility with ROMs into consideration, just kind of what would I pick? Well, if money wasn't a consideration, I'd pick both. <laughs> I'm sorry for the asshole answer, but it's, it's just the truth. Um, here's the thing. When you're using something like the Dolphin emulator, if you have a really beefy PC, you could render games in 4K. It doesn't always look perfect, but sometimes it looks absolutely amazing, and that's nothing any video processor would ever be able to do, period, end of story. So rendering it in a higher resolution has to be done on the software level as the game is running. So that will always have the potential to look better. Same with Nintendo 64 games. If you, especially if you have some of those community rebuilt games that were reverse engineered by their source code, now you could render those in 4K and they will never look, or a scaler could never look as good as that. But now you're limited to what games are compatible. You have to buy a much more expensive PC to get that kind of rendering than you would spend on a RetroTank 4K. So if you're just talking about, hey, I have a decent PC with a 3060 graphics card in it, what would look better? I don't know. That's that's going to be a tough one. But if you're talking about money isn't an issue, you could throw a giant beefy PC at this and get huge amounts of compatibility with very little to no latency. But you're spending a lot of money on a PC to do this. So it's really going to be up to you. Um, my, my answer to these questions are usually start with whatever's free. So let's just assume that you have a computer and you don't have an N64 and you don't have a RetroTank 4K. Just try it. Plug it into your OLED. See what happens. Maybe you could only render in 1080p, but then you could do some kind of scale using your video card to 4K. Maybe that's all you need. Maybe you'll be fine. Or if you already have an N64 and some CRT, that could very well be all you would ever need. Um, but I would always start with the freest solution and just kind of go from there and only spend your money when you need to. And while I love talking about everything new and exciting that's coming out, very often what you already own is totally fine, as long as it's not branded by the company Pound or anything like that. So yeah, that's just kind of my general advice on that. But let me know if you want me to elaborate anymore and how'd I do on your name? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up, Tony Escobar is having an issue switching their mister to only work on RetroNAS, so to use the CIFS script and to not actually load ROMs off of the microSD card anymore. And it was working fine in the standard mode, which is what I use, where all of your games except for arcade games are on the on RetroNAS. Arcade games still stay on your microSD card, which you could just run update all to get those, so you don't really need to mess with it. And I believe save games and tweaks and stuff still stay on your micro SD card, but nothing else. So essentially, you could use the uh, the small, what was it, 8 gigabyte or something, or 8, um, 8 gigabyte micro SD that comes with the DE10. You could actually just use that if you wanted to. Uh, now, that was working fine for Tony, but when he switched over to the advanced setup, it ended up killing his micro SD card and the Wi-Fi. Now, that's odd. That doesn't really make sense. Um, 
I don't know why it would do that. I'll, I'll reach out to Dan after I'm done recording this to see if he has any thoughts. Now it's making me want to load up a new SD card and just try that advanced setup as well through RetroNAS to see what happens. But that doesn't really make sense because I don't know why any of that would happen. Because when you switch to CIFS mount, it ignores the micro SD card for most of it. It wouldn't damage it. Uh, so I'm not really sure. What I would suggest, though, is um, I would not use a one terabyte card if you're going to switch back and forth. I would use a cheap, cheap card. And like for me personally, I either use the cards that the DE10 came with or I'll get like a on sale 64 gigabyte card or something. And I load the games I use all the time. My typical test ROMs, Mario and Zelda, um, all of the 240p test suites, all the HD retrovision test suites, and then obviously the arcade stuff. And I would not switch to one of the larger ones, which I still have for when I know that I'm not going to be connected to a network easily, but I wouldn't switch to that unless you would need it. I would almost treat it like a cartridge in an old video game console. But that's really weird that it crashed for you. So I'm going to try to fire it up and test myself when I have time. But I would, I'm also going to reach out to Dan and see because that, that just something's not making sense there. I'm not sure where the disconnect could be. Um, and also, did you copy the CIFS directly from the my RetroNAS post and then just obviously change it to your credentials? Or was that, did you get that somewhere else? Because I don't know. Maybe the CIFS file is doing something different. I'm not really sure, but you could always DM me if you want. I could just send you mine and just change your network credentials instead and have it connect to yours. First up, Tony Shadwick has a hypothetical question for me. Are any of the current scalers, including the RetroTINK 4K, capable of downscaling a 320 by 240 signal to 160 by 120? They have this idea kicking around in their head for getting a mess of weatherproof NeoPixel LEDs and sticking them to their garage door. 320 by 240 would mean having 76,800 LEDs attached to their garage door, and that seems like asking for a fire or at least be able to roast marshmallows on the door. They're well aware this is impractical and that an older projector is a more viable solution, but it was an idle thought. Uh, if they used 160 by 120, that would be only 19,200 LEDs, and they suspect if they dropped it down to 80 by 60, most games would be rendered pretty much illegible. So this is an interesting idea. Um, what I would actually look into are things like those holiday light machines that could, like you, you tell it what lights you have and it'll do all these dances and designs and see if anybody has used those to project an image on it. I imagine there's going to be latency, so while it would be certainly fun, you might be better off having pre-recorded footage that you try to run through it just so you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. But if you, the goal really is to do an LED gaming wall, I would look into that because people have absolutely done that. I just don't know what the, the latency would be. The scenarios that I've seen them have usually been in things like, um, like it's a display in public, so the gamers are playing on a normal gaming monitor, but everybody else is staring at this giant LED array uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't really know. That's a good question. Um, I'm assuming the Tink 4K could do it with a custom output resolution, but I don't know how bad that would look. I mean, if you, you'd, uh, there's so much that goes into it. Cause if you took something like an old NES game and you cropped it and then removed some of the information, it would work, but it would look odd. So I don't know. Um, I don't think this is a dumb idea at all. I think this is fun. I think this is the type of nerdy projects that end up being fun videos. Uh, but it's just one of those things where 
that that's a tough one and playing video games on it would be the issue so i would look into led gaming walls and then led holiday lights and see how people are doing those and then at the very worst case swing back to look at downscalers but i think i would kind of start with that and see what happens one more question from tony a while back i'd offered them some of the shielded speakers that i bought by mistake that i thought i was going to put in my astro city but they were too big they were actually the size for a capcom big blue uh, and I ended up selling those, but as it turns out, Tony got their hands on a new in-box 25-inch CRT that they'll be tube-swapping into their machine, so now they could use those new speakers. Uh, betting you sold them in an auction by now. I did. In fact, I sold them twice. It was very weird. I sold them, and then about a month later, I see an email come in from eBay that said, like, your item is sold, and I'm like, that sold a month ago. That must have been a bug. And about a week goes by, I get a random message from somebody that says they haven't gotten their speakers yet. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I looked it up, and apparently eBay had listed them as two sets of two. So they doubled up the listings. So I, I um, apologized profusely. Luckily, the person was very nice about it all. But uh, So yes, I accidentally sold them twice. And I refunded the money, obviously. I needed to say that just in case. But uh, I did go back and look for those a while ago because somebody else was asking, and they went up in price. So I could drop a link to the exact ones that I purchased, but unfortunately, you're probably going to have to be spending a little bit more on them. But they they were pretty good. They were nice and heavy. Um, the material felt great. So, And the person who originally suggested them to me owns them and says that they're great. So I'll, I'll leave a link to what I think is going to be the same. Uh, but yeah, but, uh, this is a general link. This is not a link to my store. I will not be selling imaginary speakers anymore. That was very embarrassing. <laughs> Next up, Shane Kulin wants to know if I like vintage anime, and if so, do I watch on a CRT, VHS, OLED ver, uh, via RetroTink 4K, any favorites? So I'm not a big, the biggest anime fan. I do like it. I loved uh, Akira. We used to call it Akira because we didn't know any better, but I always loved that one. And the older I got, like every seven, eight years or something, I would rewatch it, and I, I got a lot more of it. Um, I remember vaguely remember Fifths of the North Star, so I should probably rewatch that again. And uh, for stuff like that, it really depends on the release. So sometimes I would probably watch that on an OLED with a RetroTINK 4K and like scanline emulation, especially if there was already a Blu-ray release of it. But I do find that a lot of stuff that was really designed to be watched on CRTs does look better that way. I'm going to finally get into CRT projectors. I owned one once for a couple months and never even plugged it in and ended up giving it to a friend. And now uh, that was back when I lived in the city, so I couldn't have one anyway. So I'm going to retry a CRT projector soon. My guess is if if it's not too hard to set up, then that might be my preferred method of doing it. But there's so many good ways. And I think one of the things that Cousin Scott and I saw when we had an old uh, X-Men D, uh, DVD. So 480i was meant to watch on TV. I think both of us preferred watching it on a CRT. I think it was just one of those things where when they were watching and editing this, that's how they were seeing it. So when you have the extra clarity of something like an OLED or a modern projector, you see stuff that you were not ever really supposed to see. Um, you know, some interference, film grainy type of things. But that's really where the RetroTINK 4K's filters absolutely shines. I'm not sure if everybody would prefer it for old movies, but for TV shows, it really fits well. And just the one random reminder is that when you're dialing in profiles, it's very easy for you 
you not meaning you Shane you meaning like everybody <laughs> to to look at these profiles and start staring at the scan lines when in actuality what you want to do is sit back on your couch and dial it in so you don't see the scan lines but the image is better just like on a CRT unless you're sitting ultra close you don't see the mask but it you kind of do but you, it's, that's not what you notice you notice the game and if you're looking for the mask, you could see it. But what you're actually getting is the mask cutting through all of that, kind of chopping the image up so that you, it hides all of the imperfections. And that's kind of the end goal for CRT mask emulation. So that's the mistake I made a lot over the years. And it's just one of those things where I've, I've gotten, especially even with the Tink 4K, I've used macro lenses to get it to look almost identical. And I sat back on my couch and I'm like, eh, it's not as good. And then I kind of tweaked it from my couch and went, oh, this is perfect. So that's just kind of a tip that I wanted to share as well. But yeah, I do. I, I should probably start watching some more vintage anime just because the ones that I saw were great. And there was a bunch more over the years. It wasn't just those two. But um, and I, I just it all how I would watch it completely depends on the format I've gotten it in and the quality and what I have available to me at the moment. So. But that is something that's like a, a side hobby, not just watching movies, but experiencing them in different ways to see what feels like the best fit. It's definitely something I've appreciated so much more lately. Next up, Shane Steinhauser has a Laserdisc player that outputs only composite video, and that looks good on their PVM, but doesn't look as good on their CRT, their widescreen CRT, their XBR 960. So they want to know what's the best way to clean up that signal. So there's a couple of things. First of all, the PVM, the professional video monitor, is going to have a higher line count. And not only that, it's going to be designed to show more detail. And that's just the inherent nature of how PVMs and BVMs work. So you might never get your widescreen consumer XBR960 to look as good. It just might never happen. The other thing you might run into is if your laser discs are widescreen, when you play them on a widescreen TV you're only using a fraction of the image because you're sending that widescreen CRT a 4x3 image that's cropped with a 16x9 video in the middle. And while, yes, some TVs have zoom functions, some work well and some do not work well at all. So that's something to consider. Also, you're not really going to get the signal cleaned up by converting it from composite to component that much. What you will get is if you use something like a RetroTINK 5X, you could very much get a, a filtered signal. So you have the uh, 2D comb filter that's built into that, that would absolutely help a lot. So that's certainly something that's, uh, that would be a help to you. But it's really just coming down to your overall experience and how much money you want to spend on something like this. Because you could get a couple of converters, you could get a video processor like the Tink 5X, a, a DVDO processor, you could zoom it with a 3D comb filter. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you could do, but it's my opinion, and just, just my opinion, please don't let me discourage you from doing whatever you would like in this situation, but... It's my opinion that in situations like this, just embrace them for what they are. If you have a laser disc that's great quality that you really want the best picture out of, use your PVM. And if you want it on a larger screen, because I'm assuming your XBR960 is larger than that, then give that a try and see. And if you already own other equipment, like the Tink 5X, get, uh, if your XBR960 has an HDMI or DVI input, cool. If not, get an HDMI to component video converter and then try just 
sending your XBR 960 560p or something like that and see if that improves the signal by deinterlacing, filtering, and upscaling it, just probably line doubling it in that case to see if that works. I would not ever suggest just going out and buying a retro tank for that only purpose because it might not do what you want. But if you already own it, I mean, what are you going to spend, 20 bucks on a digital to analog converter that you'll probably use for a million other things anyway? So yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on that. But please let me know if you want me to elaborate a little bit more on any of this stuff. I just kind of wanted to share my opinions and sort of point you in the right direction. Next up, Alex Hollingsworth is having an issue converting the HDMI output from the Carby, the GameCube HDMI plug-and-play device, for use with both a Sony Vega and PVM20M2U. They're using one of the generic HDMI component converters that's on that I list on the Amazon page. At one point, they swore the thing worked, but now they have to enable and disable the scan doubler until the TV actually locks onto the sink. This issue doesn't seem limited to TVs either. Both the RetroTINK 5X and Extron VSC 500 refuse to read a signal without this manual fiddling. Any ideas would be appreciated, as this has been irritating them for a few months now. Well, I'm sorry, Alex, but you've run into what we've all been running into, and it's a result of inconsistent digital-to-analog converters. Now, what happens is companies like Lontium will make these chips that are that work very well, and they're cheap, but you could use different ways of making them to get your signal out, and there could even be different revisions of the chip that works slightly different. So... The issue is that, well, first, the issue is inconsistency. The reason it's inconsistent is some lock directly onto a 15 kilohertz signal, and some do exactly what you have found, in that you have to send it 480p first, and then flip it down to 15 kilohertz, and then it'll start working. Otherwise, it won't sync onto it for whatever crazy reason. Sometimes the inconsistency is because the manufacturers don't read the new data sheets and create the correct circuit around it. Other times, companies like Lontium change their chips and don't really tell anybody, um, and sometimes they're just poorly made products. But unfortunately, in, uh, until the community made one, which I think the project stalled, I, I thought there was a prototype ready months ago, but I, I haven't gotten one yet. I, I don't know. I'll figure that out. But until that's released, this is what we have to deal with. Now, the only good side is you're spending 25 bucks and you could return it to Amazon if it doesn't work right. But whereas the community-made one's going to be at least double that because we can't make them in quantities of 20,000. So we have to pay all of the higher premiums on all of the everything, manufacturing, components, etc. So unfortunately, the fix that you've figured out is all you could do other than try to buy another one of those. But you could, and I mean, you could buy 10 and nine might work and one wouldn't, or you could buy 10 and nine doesn't work and one does. And that's the major problem, the inconsistency. So uh, I will check in with the person designing the community made one. I, I thought it was ready to go. Uh, I thought it was at least ready to, proto uh, the prototype was ready to go. But that's going to be what I would suggest from now on to the point that I, I might even remove those from my Amazon store once that's released or keep them with a disclaimer. Because even when that's released, if you're really just converting 480p, that's not a problem at all. But, you know, if it does turn out to be 75 bucks, I know a lot of people that would rather just try the $25 version first. And then if they won the DAC lottery and it worked, great. And if not, then they would return it and get the community-made one. And that's fine, too. I'm never trying to tell people that you have to spend a ton of money. But I do want everybody to know the differences and the choices. So... 
Unfortunately, Alex, right now the choice is keep buying and returning until they work and you might not even find one. So I, if I were you, I would keep doing what you were doing and, and just cross your fingers that this community made one comes out within the next couple of months. Koalakoa wanted to switch from using SCART switches to an Extron Crosspoint Matrix switch. And seeing their complicated setup, that actually was the right thing to do anyway. I'm a, a big fan of the G-SCART, and um, the Gamescare SCART switch was very good too. But for something that has that many inputs and that many outputs, the Crosspoint's definitely going to be the better way to go. It'll probably be more expensive because you'll end up having to make or buy a lot more customized cables, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> the only thing to mention about the SCART switches is, at the very least, there's definitely no latency added by daisy-chaining analog SCART switches. Maybe latency in the time it takes to switch between consoles when you power one off and power one on, but it certainly doesn't add input lag or anything like that, or output lag or whatever. So you wouldn't have to worry about that, but um, it's it just, for somebody who wants a lot of inputs and a lot of outputs, this is definitely going to be the better way to go about it. The problem is, though, it seems like Koala's not getting any signal on the output side. So the first thing that you need to worry about is they said they purchased SCART to BNC cables. So that's directional. When you bought those, you want SCART in, BNC out. Also, all of your SCART cables need to have C-Sync on the output, not composite video or Luma S-Sync. If you need those, you could either get the SCART to BNC cables with a sync stripper in it, or you could just order new SCART cables, or depending on the store, I think Retro Gaming Cables sells direct BNC cables, so that would be an easy solution too. Just console end on one side, BNC on the other. And the only scenario in which you would have to use a sync stripper would be PlayStation 1 uh, if you were using RGB SCART. And then uh, you, if you used HD retrovision cables, that's not an issue. And same thing, PlayStation 2, if you're using component video cables, you don't have to worry. However, if you were using um, RGB SCART, you would definitely have to use a sync stripper for the PlayStation consoles. Everything else should have C-Sync available. Now, on the output side, going BNC to SCART, that's a different direction, which requires a slightly different cable. If you've already ordered them, you could just do some soldering and move the cables to where you need to go in the SCART head. Um, but that's definitely a thing. And also the output of the cross point is going to have a higher voltage on the sync line. So you would absolutely need, uh, going into SCART devices, you would need some kind of resistor on there. I think a 470 ohm resistor should be good. That, you want to double check your service manual, but 99% of the time, having the higher voltage sync directly into PVMs or VGA monitors is fine. Not SCART devices, though. So not TVs with a SCART port, not scalers with a SCART port, not other switches. If it's got a SCART port and you're going from an Extron device, you need that resistor on the sync line. So um, you kind of have a lot to double check here. What I would do is the same type of uh, nerd suggestion that I would always suggest in that start out by connecting one device. So let's take PlayStation 2 component video. Plug that into your Tink 5X. Does it work? Great. Plug that into your Xtron Crosspoint and then have the output of the Crosspoint going in and nothing else connected, Just or I mean, you don't have to disconnect it, but just, just try that one thing. So input one to output one, make sure they're set up on the buttons because when you're using the Crosspoint, you have to set it and then hit enter for all that stuff to, to work and see what happens. Do you get a signal? 
If the answer is no, in that very basic setup, there's something wrong with your cross point. If the answer is yes, then you kind of just have to go down the line and figure out which troubleshooting step where, where you find the failure. So then you grab your Sega Genesis RGB SCART cable, you plug it into the Tink 5X, it works, you plug it in into the cross point, and it doesn't. So is it pinned correctly? Um, do you have a a sync or do you have a resistor on the sync line on the output side? You kind of have to just break this down bit by bit in order to figure out all of this stuff. Um, you could, if you already have a transcoder, you could use that on the input side. And I do know plenty of people that let's say they have 10 component video consoles and five RGB SCART, they would grab their G SCART switch, put everything into that, use the G SCART switches sync stripping and then sent the G-SCART to one input in the cross point. So input one in the cross point is the G-SCART with five other consoles, and then you don't have to worry about a lot of that stuff. Still on the output side, but that's it. So how about we'll start here, and let me know where you need to go with this. Did I point you in the right direction? Are you still having issues? Did you determine it's the cross point? Do you need another one, et cetera, et cetera? We could definitely figure this out, but you need to just, uh, especially for your own sanity, break it down into single test points to try and determine the exact point of failure. And then everything should start to fall into place. So we'll let's start here and then see where we could go with it. Oliver Clear has a Synology 6-bay NAS with 90 terabytes of storage. That's awesome. Mine's only 70 terabytes, so you got me beat. And they were looking into integrating retro NAS, but they had some thoughts on all of this stuff. It seems like they use their NAS as a backup and have all of their data elsewhere, which is how I use mine for the most part as well. So they were first kind of nervous about making that uh, something that's constantly accessed via RetroNAS, as well as how do you install it and what are the alternatives. So you could just put RetroNAS on a Raspberry Pi, which um, that alone could be very helpful for things like using it for Dreamcast for the Dream Pi solution. You could do all of that stuff, and you basically just create a share on your current Synology NAS that's retro NAS or, and don't make it a global or a public share, if you will, but just keep that as something that you would have to program in. You would link up the retro NAS raspberry Pi to it. And whenever you played games, essentially the Pi would be copying games from the Synology, running it through the Pi out to whatever Mr. <clears throat> PlayStation two, whatever you were using. That should be fine. You definitely want to use a Pi 4 or above because you want that gigabit Ethernet port, but that should be fine. Um, and it would certainly get out, get around a lot of the other limitations that you might have because you can't just install retro NAS on a Synology NAS, and no one's ported over the individual components yet. So that would actually take somebody that was kind of an expert in Synology stuff to do that, which if you're one of those people, by all means, have at it. So the other side of that, though, what about constantly accessing the the NAS scenario? Would, do you have to worry about wearing the drives down? And I don't think that's something that you should have a concern about as long as your data is always in two places. So let's say you dump all of your ROMs on your NAS. Make sure they're also on your PC. Same way that when you mentioned you buy games from Steam, you download them on your PC and you also have them on your NAS. That way if one or the other ever get struck by lightning or something, you still have your data there. What you could do if you really wanted to is build a dedicated Unraid server as the RetroNAS server, 
and then use your NAS just to back the ROMs up to. So whenever you add new ROMs, you run a sync program that sends them to the NAS, and then that just kind of sits and never gets used until it's accessed for storage. And the the whole building an Unraid server is actually super easy. Check out Ed's channel, Space Invader 1. Grab any old PC, put two hard drives in it, and you're good to go. Um, you know, it, it's really, it's not as daunting as one might think. And when drives fail using Unraid, that was my favorite part because there was just no issues. So for something like a Synology 6-Bay NAS, you would probably have all of the exact same drive in there. And if one failed, you would need, you would absolutely need the same drive. And if two failed, depending on how you set it up, you might lose everything. Whereas on RAID, if you have a six terabyte drive in there and that dies, you go, ah, all right, you just put in a 20 terabyte because you know you wanted the extra space, you're done. That's it. Or if you have a parity drive, and this just happened to me, I had a parity drive that was 18 and a 16 terabyte drive died, and I wanted to add a 20. Well, you can't add the 20 because it has to, the parity drive has to be the largest. So I plugged the 20 in, and I ran a script based on one of Ed's videos, and what it ended up doing was first copying the parity drive over to the 20 terabyte, and then rebuilding the dead 16 terabyte onto the 18, using uh, just using the parity data, and everything was fine. Now, it took like a week. Like I had to just let it run and not touch it, but it worked fine. And that's not something you'll get with something like a Synology. Uh, I think, I mean, there might be newer ways of doing it, but that's kind of the advantage of Unraid. So while I would not at all tell you to get rid of a 90 terabyte NAS solution that's probably perfect, what I would confidently say is grab an old PC, grab two or three drives, doesn't even matter the size, just big enough to start your game collection, install that. Uh, it's free to try, and then you have to buy it. That's kind of the only thing, you know, I think a lot of people really wish Unraid was free, but you get what you pay for. It's pretty cool. I like the GUI. I find it to be pretty easy. But do that, and then follow the instructions on RetroRGB to add RetroNAS functionality to it, and that should be it. And maybe someday you'll migrate everything over to it. Maybe you won't, and you'll just leave that as your RetroNAS server and leave your NAS alone. But I think that's a pretty cheap way to get started, and depending on how many old PCs and drives you have laying around, it might be cheaper than going out and buying a new Pi. So that's where I would start. But let me know if you have any other thoughts or questions on it. I do plan on doing another RetroNAS video at some point. But at the moment, I'm probably booked all the way through January into February for stuff that I need to get done. And it's already kind of exhausting. So I'm uh, I'm not going to be jumping into that until I until I free up some other time. But hopefully I was at least able to point in the right direction. One more from Oliver. They had a 32X that was pretty beat up, so they sent it to a local company for repainting, and the repaint process came out great, but they ended up sanding off the original logos. They, the company who did it did some custom 32X logo stickers as a replacement, but it doesn't quite capture the original look and feel. So who in the community might be able to make original replacements like that? Uh, Graphics Gear is the first person that would come to mind. They did a bunch of really awesome stuff. Um, whoever was doing the jewels for Muramasa, those are great. Um, but I, those would be the two places that I would start with. I would just reach out to Graphics Gear and see if they'd be willing to, to make something like that. And if they were, I'm sure they would make enough for to sell a few extras. So I'll leave a link 
I'm not sure the best place to contact him, so I'll just drop a social media link there, and hopefully I could find other places. Uh, or you, if you can't find him there, you could find him other places. But great question. I'd like to see that too, just because there's a lot of people doing restoration work that would love to have the original stickers and stuff put on it. So um, hopefully that'll be an easy one. Kelp Help has a question about video capture. On their YouTube channel, they like to do port comparisons comparing different versions of the same game. And while they can't upgrade to 4K yet, since it requires a massive setup overall, <laughs> yes, it does, um, everything is generally geared towards 1080p. So I have a couple of suggestions, but I want to step back first. And I want to make sure you, I want to make sure that I'm understanding what it is that you're trying to compare. So if you're digging into very small details, like any video artifacts or anything like that, then you're really going to need to get a lossless setup. And that's kind of tricky because that's kind of what I do, what John Linneman does. And what you end up needing to do is you capture the lossless footage, you make your example shots, but then by the time it hits YouTube, it's compressed and your examples might look exactly the same. So your audience is really relying on you to to do that analysis and check it out and and kind of, you know, to have that proof. And integrating still shots is always an easy help with something like that. So my first question is, do you need to do that? And I don't mean any disrespect by that at all. It's also not a compliment. It's just a question. It's an emotionless question. Do you need to dig into that kind of detail? Or could you just simply record as long as it's not dropping frames could you just simply record in 60 frames per second at 1080p or lower, do your comparisons, and then if you see something that's graphic glitchy, do a screenshot, and then compare the two still shots together. And that's what I do very often, and I even have the ability to do uncompressed capture up to 4K60, but a lot of times it's just a tremendous waste of time and energy especially if you're just zooming in to look at, like, that's why I use Link's face so often to show any of the details or any of the interference, because it's such an easy way that anybody could instantly recognize the difference as long as you're watching on a decent screen or something like that. So you don't need to dig in deep. So it's my guess, without getting any more details from you, this is kind of like the the reason why I always like to make these feel like we're hanging out somewhere, but if we were actually hanging out somewhere, I could just ask you and get the answer right away. So Sorry about this, but my guess based on what you've told me is that you probably don't need to dig so deep into all of that. I would just double check that your capture card isn't dropping frames. Um, the easiest way to do that is set your RetroTINK 5X to 1080p 60, plug that into your capture card, and run the 240p test suites counter for five minutes, let's just say, and then go and open it up in uh, VDub does single frame advance. I forgot about that. All the times I told people to open it up in a video editor, I forgot that the capture software I use can do that. Thanks to everybody in the comments who uh, who politely reminded me of that. Really appreciate it. Um, so open it up in VDub and then just go frame by frame and count that you hit 60 a couple times in a row. Fast forward to the middle, do it again. Fast forward to the end, do it again. And if you don't find that any frames are dropped, then you should be good. That would be the number one thing. Because if you're recording footage and you're analyzing footage and you're going, oh, that one's stuttering, the GameCube version's worse, but it's your capture setup. And that's something that I've seen a lot. There was one person, I probably shouldn't get into drama, but there was one person that was throwing shade at John Lineman years ago and basically stealing the exact method of capture and comparison, or the exact method of comparison, but not 
capture. And they were uh, talking about this, uh, you know, comparing two versions of the same game, and they were calling out artifacts that was a result of the scaler, not the game. So uh, it was a smaller channel, so I just, I didn't say anything. I didn't want to cause trouble. But we we who put all of the time and effort into doing the comparisons that we do had a very lar large and loud chuckle at that one. So uh, don't be that person. It wasn't you, <laughs> obviously, but don't be that person. Um, you know, take your time to check the things that matter and just be honest about the things that you haven't hit yet. So if somebody in your chat calls out compression artifacts, you could just say, hey, here's the capture card I use. Here's the method. That's not one of the things I was reviewing in the game. So that's probably a capture artifact or something like that. So that's just kind of how I would approach it. But um, if you really wanted to dig into the weeds, that's you're going to need to go a lot further and it's going to be a giant pain and it might not matter. Now you're going to need to get into using VW for capture. You're going to need to dial the exact um, refresh rates. You're only going to need to use the Tink 4K or the Tink 5X in um, frame lock mode, not triple buffer. You, I don't know if your capture card's going to work for that. There's a whole lot of stuff where you might end up having to buy a whole new PC and you might not need this at all for what you're doing. Once again, I just mean that emotionless. Like this might just be a waste of time and money and simply verifying that your capture card's doing what you think it's doing might be all that you need to do. So let me know what you think about this one. Let me know if there's any other thing I could do to help. I hope everything I said came out as uh, encouraging, not discouraging, but I don't want you to waste thousands of dollars on a capture PC and hours and hours of time to do stuff that it might not matter for what you're trying to accomplish. Next up, Steve Wells has a suggestion for fixing stripped screws. One bodged fix that you could do is slice off a sliver of a matchstick, put that into the stripped hole, and gently put the screw back in. The wood from the stick should allow the screw to bind. That's a cool suggestion. I like that. That would absolutely work if you're putting it back together and never, and never plan on undoing it again, because every time you add a matchstick, that might expand a little further. Uh, but for just getting it done. I love solutions like this. That's one of the ones that, um, that's one of those things where like, if I were a pro modder, that's not what I would choose. Cause I would want to make sure the customer didn't have to know any of these gutches about taking it back apart, but it's absolutely something that I would do for my own console. So I appreciate the suggestion, Steve. That was a cool one. Kirk said they accidentally left their Atari 2600 on for a couple of nights next to their CRT and their CRT now has a small red patch where the Atari was. Could this have been caused by the console, or is it a coincidence and caused by an unrelated issue? Anything's possible, but that's very unlikely. And that's one of these reasons why a lot of these consoles have the shielding that they do, because they're not supposed to em emit any kind of electromagnetic radiation or any kind of thing that could cause damage to other components around it. It's possible something's up with your 2600 doing this, um, but I I think this might just be a coincidence. Do you have any non-magnetically shielded speakers next to it? Uh, it could be one of those things where you turn on your 2600 and it's messing with the unshielded speaker, which has always been next to your TV. It could be something weird. Um, you could try getting a degaussing wand and seeing if that gets rid of it. And has anybody else run into this? But I certainly haven't. And in fact, when we were kids, when we were playing games that didn't have save in them, like I remember specifically Super Mario 2, there was a couple of times we got to higher levels, so we would leave it paused, turn off the TV, 
and then come back the next day, turn on the TV, and unpause it and continue where we were at. And we never ended up doing anything like that. There was never any damage to the TV. And all my friends did that too. So or not maybe not all, but a lot of my friends did that. And we would have gotten in some unbelievably deep shit with our parents if we had burned a red spot into our TV for leaving our Nintendo consoles on for days on end. So uh, I could definitely say that it's never happened to me, but that's a weird one. I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it probably is just a coincidence. Just double check there's no unshielded speakers right near your TV. Two questions from Adam Adam Ant. First, regarding the Kanto Aura speakers, what connection method do I prefer? They were thinking of taking their audio out from a G-Comp switch and connecting those audio connections to the speakers and not connecting the audio connections to the CRT audio input. Their CRT doesn't have any audio outputs. So for this, um, I would, if you plan on only using those speakers and not ever using the CRT speakers, I would just skip the CRT and plug it directly in, especially if you have, let's just say a really nice CRT, but only with a single mono speaker, just skip it, go right into the auras and don't worry about it. But if you're in one of those situations where let's say you have a really nice consumer CRT that has very good speakers and you only want to turn on the auras when you want that extra boost, you're like, maybe you're like me and you don't want to get used to the good audio. You want to flip it on only when it matters to you and certainly not when you're running a test or something like that. If that's the case, just use uh, Y connectors. Um, and remember, it's always safe to use Y connectors with audio. It might introduce some kind of ground hum or artifacts, but it's not going to destroy anything, whereas it's never safe to use Y connections with video. So if that was the case, just use some splitters, Y cable splitters, get some longer ones, <clears throat> and uh, just plug one into the TV, one into the auras, and go from there, and you should be fine. The only time I wouldn't do that is if it was mono on the TV, because then it would end up being mono on the other speakers. But if it's stereo on the TV and stereo on the speakers, and you just wanted the ability to use both, splitters should be fine. If it introduces a ground hum or some crackling, take them out. Uh, but if not, at least it's safe to use. But it kind of sounds like in that scenario, you should just plug them into the auras, especially if you've invested the money in them. So next, regarding that new Sega Neptune, um, the one that Tito just did a video on that I thought was amazing. Um, Adam doesn't want to lose Sega CD compatibilities. They have RetroFrog's breakout connector that lets you use the Mega SD through the Sega CD port. So is there a reason that this wouldn't work? Uh, in Tito's video, they saw what looked like a removable cover for the Sega CD port, but it was only a brief shot. I think it would work with 32X CD games, but I don't know if it would work with Sega CD games. And I sold all of that stuff a long time ago. Otherwise, I would have offered to test it for you because that's, I'm curious about that myself. I'm actually wondering how that would work. So I guess I would have to, I should know the answer to this. I'm positive I did know the answer back when I did that live stream with Beast, but I don't remember anymore. So you might have to just double check um, maybe the Terra Onion Discord or something like that. Um, will the side adapter work with regular Sega CD games with a 32X plugged in, or will it only work with 32X CD games? Sorry, I don't have the answer to that one. Next up, Durf had some things to talk about regarding magnetically shielded speakers and the wiki. So this was a good one. Um, first, Durf suggests using apps uh, that are available on any smartphone with GPS capabilities because those GPSs also have to have a magnet sensor built in to work. So you could use that to detect, mag to detect magnetic fields. And I did try that, and it mostly worked. So 
I, I suggest as many methods as possible. Somebody else said try a compass. I thought that worked as well uh, too. But the more methods you could use to test, the one thing I don't suggest is opening up the speaker because a lot of speakers could be sealed and the moment you crack them open, they change the way they sound. And it just, I, I don't want to see people waste speakers. Um, the only thing that I would add is that Durf said that um, the front of speakers aren't magnetically shielded, so you should never point them directly towards the screen if you're trying to eyeball if there's interference. I did, and I didn't get any interference on mine, on all the ones that I tested. That's a good point, but I just think wiggling them around like I did in the last videos and just showing exactly what I saw for interference, I thought that was probably the best overall way. Um, unfortunately, though, Durf tried that, and it didn't uh, didn't have any interference, so they thought they were okay to use. But over the course of months, they had magnetized the corners of the screen, and it needed an external degauss. So that's why, in a perfect world, what you would do is set up either a smartphone in manual camera mode, or any kind of manual settings camera, set that up on a tripod, and then use both an all-white screen and color bars and do exactly what I did, wave them all around like a crazy person and play the video back and see if you could see interference. And that's how I figured out one of the subwoofers was too close because I did all of that, but it, I, I couldn't really tell. So what I ended up doing, the, the way I found out that it was interfering is I compared the first shot of the all-white screen before I moved the speaker over to the last and you could see on the side, there was a tiny, tiny bit of difference that I didn't notice. So then I actually called my wife down and said, hey, let me know if the bottom of the screen changes. And I climbed down and I kind of wiggled the subwoofer and she was like, yep. So confirmed that even though I didn't think it was interfering, it actually was. So the camera trick might work. Um, also, though, uh, Durf has added two pages to the wiki. Once, uh, one is talking about how to detect these magnetic fields, but the other one is a list of speakers that have been confirmed to either be shielded or not shielded. The only thing I would add to that list is any extra model information, date codes of when they were made, any in other information people could give so that you don't end up with situations like I run into where there are those speakers the Klipsch speakers that were magnetically shielded still to this day on their website listed as shielded, but at some point they just stopped adding the shields. So having a date code or something would definitely be really helpful for that. Uh, but I love that you thought to make that list. So thank you so much for it and for the extra tips. Next up, Richard Webster said they've just had a triple bypass version two installed in their VA4 Mega Drive 2, and they're still seeing jail bars. What could they do about it? Talk to your installer and see if they're using Cruz's methods of installation. There was a reason that Jose did so many different installs for us um, at a very big discount. So thank you again for him for that. But finding where to run the wires and then what components to lift on which model was a huge difference. There were some models that he did the bottom install to, and while that might have been easier, there were other models he had to put it on the top and run the wires around in a very specific direction, otherwise they were picking up interference off of the board. There's also some models that you have to lift RGB from some of the other chips and other models that you do not. So there are there is a chance that you have a model Genesis Mega Drive that um, that we didn't test. I don't think we tested, I, we only tested one or two PAL revisions. So if it's a PAL revision, maybe that's just a noisy model. 
just like how some Model 1 Genesis consoles are always going to be noisier than model later models or Model 2s. It could be that, but it could be installation technique. So I would talk to your modder and just double check and see if they've had other issues with that exact model motherboard revision. Um, maybe it's something that people have found out. There's one rev out there that's always going to have jail bars, but all the Genesis 2s I've seen that had the triple bypass installed look pretty awesome and sounded. Some of the Model 2s had terrible audio, and it was such an upgrade for the audio side. So just talk to your modder and see what they say, and um, you know maybe try to find a Discord where some of the, the pros are hanging out on, and, or in, even the retro RGB Discord, and see if anybody has some tips for you there. Next up, Eric Fleener has a question. Um, there's a couple of prefaces here, though. Uh, my answers are going to be honest and blunt. There's not any emotion in them unless I, I say it. Also, Eric's been a supporter for a while. This is an honest question. There's zero trolling going on here. Even though the question is sure to stir up some trolls, that's clearly not what Eric's going for. No, you know, Nothing but respect for you, Eric. But the question is, with the Pixel FX Morph releasing soon, if they sent me a unit or if a member of the community sent me one, would I be willing to do a review on the channel and the website? So the short answer is yes, but, and I'll explain in detail because if I don't, I'm going to get flamed for it here. Not by you, Eric, but by everyone else listening. So first and foremost, I will review any product that I think is worth reviewing that's not a clone. So that's the only prerequisites. I have to think it's worth my time to do so. And I, it just can't be from a clone company. Even if it in itself is not a clone, I refuse to support clone companies. The morph looks very cool, and pixel effects are obviously not cloners, so that's that's fine. However, there's a couple of factors involved. Um, based on the pictures that they showed on their website, it's not done. What they showed as an example of smoothing and interpolation is funny, so that's not a finished firmware. So if I review that now, that's not really fair to anybody, especially to Pixel FX. So if I put it up against the OSSC Pro, which has, I, I first tested that years ago, and Marcus has been working on the firmware for the DeX, which is very similar. So that's a very mature product. And then the Tink 4K has been out privately for a year, tested by some of the best devs on the planet. So if I put those three up against each other now, that is not fair. A beta firmware for the Morph versus two solid firmwares on stable products, it, it, there would be a lot of stuff that I would call out, which is true, but that might not reflect what you get whenever, whenever it releases. I think their website was updated to say quarter one and quarter two. I could be wrong about that, but <clears throat> point is, if it's not out yet and it's not stable launch day firmware, then what I'm going to do is an unfair review. Um, especially with features that don't seem like they're finished yet. So, it, and if I do that, all that's going to accomplish is trash a product that's not finished yet, so it's not fair, and open up the door for just insane more amounts of trolling. It's been brutal how many people have created created brand new accounts just to call me a biased tink shill and make up rumors about me. It's almost as weird as the people who created those accounts to say that I had joined Team Mars, and I was sabotaging Mr. I spent a third or a quarter of every week's podcast gushing over how much I love the Mr., helping promote every dev on Mr. Why, why would I do that? So it's maddening that I have to wade through these just hundreds of morons just to get you the truth. But I don't want to open myself up for that at all. So what I think 
should be the right thing to do is wait till the morph is actually out and wait till the team says, this is a solid, stable firmware. And that way, if I find things that I don't like about it, I find things that I don't like about what they have said is the final product and final launch firmware. I mean, I would hope that they're going to continue to do firmware updates to it, but I think that's the only fair way I could go about doing this. Um, And, you know, it's one of these things where it's just, it's hard to navigate the scene sometimes. And people very often say, oh, there's so much drama now in retro. It's it's only just spilled into the public a little bit now. It's always kind of like this, and it's always really hard to navigate stuff like this. And I've even been in a situation for the past couple of years where there was one seller selling a product. That's not good. It's not bad, though, but it's not great. But they were the only one consistently keeping them in stock. They have excellent customer service other than the fact that the product isn't great. So I still promoted it. But now that there's other options, I'm promoting the other better options And now that person in their legion of trolls is coming after me for no longer promoting their products. And it's like, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. I kept my mouth shut about the fact that the product wasn't that great for all these years because it it wasn't bad and it was in stock and every everybody got treated fairly at a decent price. So it's it's very hard to navigate this stuff. And I try my best. And the only time I get really I don't want to say upset, but the only things that really piss me off are when people in the comments are like you know, whenever you even mention trolling, you're just feeding them and you're just causing drama. And I don't even want to listen to you anymore because you just talk about trolls. And it's like, it's not how life works. Sometimes you got to get out in front of this stuff. And now like today, over explaining why my answer is, yes, I'll review the morph, but I want to wait until it's actually a finished product. You know, if I didn't over explain this for five minutes, I would have just had to deal with hundreds of social media and YouTube comments of people trying to just create a narrative that's a complete and total lie. So, Eric, uh, I don't mind these questions. If I minded the question, I would have reached out to you directly and answered you privately. I'm happy to answer them. I don't blame you for any of this. Your question was very, very clearly well intended. I just wanted to explain this to everybody why you're not seeing morph reviews and why you're not seeing it mentioned in other videos because it's not a product that's here yet. And if I did start to point things out about it, it's not fair to Dan Woozle or Christoph. If they think differently, that's on them, but that's my strong opinion. And I, if I'm, you all think I'm wrong, let me know politely and I, maybe I could do something. Maybe I could just do a, a beta review of it or something like that, but I just don't think that's a good representation of a product is showing it when it's, you know, when it's not done yet. So I, I don't know, but let me know what y'all think. One more from Oliver. He's looking for a good amp that's cheap, that could be used to test speakers, but also probably still use it at some other point in the future. And I think I have a solution for you and I'll leave a link to it, but let me just first go over the question and then explain, explain my suggestion for it. So Oliver's pre-wiring his entire house for speakers, but at the moment doesn't have the budget to populate every spot that a speaker is going to be. But now that the house is still in the process of being built, Oliver wants to test those wires to make sure they're connected. That way you're not chasing a wire through a sealed up wall when you eventually add speakers later. Um, So that makes perfect sense. I mean, you have to populate some of them, or maybe you could populate some speakers, but you don't have the amp for that room yet totally fine. So I would suggest an amp that I found recently that you could reuse. Now, 
here's the thing. If you just wanted to test speakers, go to a thrift store, get an old amp, test it first on crappy speakers to make sure it doesn't work, and that's all you need, and you're done. However, I'm interpreting your question as what is a cost-effective amplifier to test each speaker that you could also end up using? And I found one amp uh, based on the uh, suggestion of Matt from Insurrection Industries, who's an audiophile and who's given me some very fairly priced solutions in the past. It's like just over a hundred bucks and it sounds so much more expensive. Uh, funny enough, when I had that Marantz amp that I did the review on, I added ceiling speakers in my kitchen and used its second zone for those. Except if you're using AirPlay, you can't just do that from your phone. You have to then go over to the amp or remote and then switch what speakers are active or not. So I, <clears throat> I ended up looking for this to test that out and to see if I could have a dedicated amp instead. And I ended up using an old uh, Apple router or something. I don't know. I just use it as an AirPlay receiver into this amp and it sounded better. And I'm pretty sure it's just because the impedance of the amp matches the impedance of the speakers better. But I was so impressed with how it sounded for the money. I'm always going to say that when I'm talking about audiophile stuff. Same thing now with scalers, right? There's always somebody out there that's going to compare the Tink 2X to the Tink 4K, just like there's always somebody out there that's going to compare this $100 amp to some $3,000 amazing beautiful amp or higher $20,000 amp that you just got to keep that into context. But for the money, I was blown away at the quality of this. It's got Bluetooth, it's got line in, I think it might have digital in as well. And I, I just was very impressed. So if you were looking for another amp for another room, I would buy this one, I would use it to do your testing. And then after you're done, you could mount this, um, you could use your uh, if you if you have Apple devices, I just have Apple phones, I'm not an Apple fanboy. I just, I still think I like small phones and big TVs. So I'm going to keep the mini until somebody finds me a better smaller phone. But the AirPlay functionality works great. So if you have one of those, then I would suggest getting an Apple router and using the same trick that I did. If you just want to use Bluetooth, it has Bluetooth built in. But I think that that would be a great amp for you to use as testing, but you could also then mount it for your kitchen speakers, mount it for a guest room, mount it outside for outside speakers. You just, you know, it's not waterproof, so be careful where you mount it. But so that's my suggestion. Either buy anything for 10 bucks at a thrift store, get something from a family member that they're about to throw out anything or buy this one and have it because it's nice and small too and have it as a multi-use thing so let me know if i pointed you in the right direction oliver next up alan ricks wants to know if i ever did a video on degaussing crts specifically how to use degaussing coils where to find a reliable one perhaps a do-it-yourself solution and no i never did and in fact i think that's probably a better video for steve from retrotech i would search his channel to see if he's already done one and if not steve if you're listening, you should do one. It's a very good idea. Thank you, Alan, for uh, for the suggestion. But I, I somebody offered to send, <coughs> excuse me, to send me one once. Uh, I said yes. They sent it in a pizza box, which was freaking awesome because it was just the perfect size. And I used it the other day when I turned my consumer CRT sideways for Tate mode, and I did it while it was on, messing up the colors. So I just waved it like a wand around it and fixed it in a couple of turns. It took like thirty seconds, but. That's not really a video explanation. That's more of just telling you what I did. So let's look to Steve from RetroTech for that. I think that would be a really great idea. And maybe he could even point out models that you could still find on eBay or something. 
Next up, Demon Koo is just looking for the best way to get VGA out of a Dreamcast. Um, I would start with the cheapest solution possible. I found a $15 generic cable on Amazon and just try it. When I bought that cheap cable 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago when I started Retro RGB, it was terrible. There was interference all over the screen, both digitally and on a VGA monitor. It was just a terrible solution, and I wish I'd... <coughs> In fact, the only reason I kept them was to use it as an example of what not to buy. But then last year, I bought another set of generics just to, to compare and contrast, and they're totally fine. There was zero interference. There wasn't audio buzz or hum. So... When you get generics, sometimes they're always going to be low quality. Sometimes it depends on the manufacturing run. So I would start from there. If you get them and you don't like them, return them and try getting the Retrobit branded ones. They're $40, and I think they're exactly the same from the same company, even though the pictures don't totally match. But even if that's true, the Retrobit ones that I bought were fine. So maybe even if that's true and they're just a rebrand, they could have come from a better run of production when the company was using better materials or something like that. So that's where I would start with. And then if not, go from there. Check out the Behar Brothers Solutions. Um, check out maybe getting the uh, RGB SCART version as a switch that goes between component, or I'm sorry, not component, between 15 and 31 kilohertz. But I would just start with there because what if you spent 15 bucks and it was fine? Wouldn't you be happy that you just saved some money? So I'll leave links to, to the cheap one and to the retro bit and go from there. And let me know if there was a different reason that you wanted them. Maybe you needed a specific adapter or something. But if you're just talking about what's a VGA cable, that's what I would recommend. Mr. Burns wants to be able to connect a Dreamcast and a Super Nintendo to the RetroTINK 5X at the same time. And they know about the retro gaming cables SCART switch, but that device is a bit bulky for their personal needs as they only need two inputs, not the rest. So what would I suggest from there? Uh, I think an excellent solution would be to get a retro gaming cables Super Nintendo RGB SCART cable and a, their, their component video cable for the Dreamcast. So you have the SCART connection plugged into the side, you have the component connection plugged into the back, and then you just use your, uh, use your remote to switch between inputs, and there you go. Both inputs active at the same time. Um, so let me know if that wouldn't work for you for whatever reason. Maybe you have other stuff connected in back, but I think that's just the perfect solution for you because you're just utilizing the inputs on your scaler, and you don't need anything else bulky around it. So um, let me know what you think. The only other thing I guess you could do is... S-Video for SNES if you wanted all the cables in the back and not use the switch, but I mean, RGB is an upgrade and you're using a beautiful scaler, so you might want to stick with that, but yeah, let me know what you think and I'll leave links to the cables that I would probably suggest for that. Actually, just go to the Retro RGB Systems section. All the cables I have are linked there. I'll leave that link to make it easier, but I think that would be all you need. Well, that's it for this week. As always, any questions you have, just please put them wherever it is you support in the latest Q&A post. The way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I like just scrolling through like you saw today and answering them as if we were hanging out somewhere. So any question you got, if it's something weird or uncomfortable, like, uh, like one of the questions today, you could always DM me if you prefer. But generally speaking, I'm completely open and honest. And while I might not be so brutally honest on these Q&As, you're going to get an honest answer. So uh, hopefully I did all right today and uh, you know, I'm still kind of getting over that weird, awful cold that's been almost two full weeks. So 
Hopefully my voice isn't as nasally as it was. But anyway, as always, thank you to everybody who both participates in these and supports in any way, because it really is you who's keeping all of this stuff alive. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.